If you're able to accomplish something for these families, which sometimes you can, and sometimes it takes years and years to do it, it's very gratifying. Welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. This is Eden Bernstein, and today I will be talking to Stuart Newberger, a partner at Cole and Mooring, about suing state sponsors of terrorism. This is the last episode of our third season, and before we jump into the conversation with Mr. Newberger, we at the University of Chicago Law Review want to thank you all for tuning in as we explored some really interesting legal questions this year. From tribal land rights to universal basic income and everything in between, this season has truly been a pleasure to produce. So thank you to everyone at home. We hope you all stay healthy and safe during this difficult time, and we look forward to meeting again for season four. Welcome, Mr. Newberger. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Where did your journey begin suing state sponsors of terrorism? Well, it probably began when I was a young lawyer uh, serving in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in D.C. After I'd gotten out of law school here at Georgetown and done a clerkship at the federal court, I was able, I was lucky enough to get appointed as an assistant U.S. attorney. And most of my work was on the civil side. I did some criminal prosecution, but mostly civil. And my clients were the State Department, the CIA, the FBI, and everybody else who got sued in the federal court in Washington for all kinds of things. Um, That's when I first really got to see from the inside as their outside lawyer, how the State Department worked, how the CIA worked, you know, as 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 a client agency. And although there wasn't a lot of terrorism as such, um, there were some uh, cases I handle about um, ambassadors being killed, uh, tourists being killed. I had a case involving El Salvador and uh, some nuns had been taken off a bus and shot and killed. There was a lot of violence in Honduras and El Salvador in those days and a lot of U.S. policy about it. So that's probably where I first kind of got more seriously involved in the foreign policy national security apparatus as their courtroom lawyer arguing in the district court and the D.C. Circuit, working with Maine Justice and all the agencies. And then later, when I joined Kroll and Mooring, which is now over 30 years ago, um, I, I began to get requests to do cases pro bono that had national security uh, or international aspects. And, you know, one thing led to another. I didn't have a business plan to do this. It just one thing led to another. And I was fortunate enough to have some people uh, reach out to me who uh, had undergone terrible experiences in their life as hostages in Lebanon for seven years or uh, political assassinations, uh, embassies bombed, airplanes blown up. And, you know, next thing you know, I've got a big practice on this. When you first moved into private practice at Kroll, were you working in international practice areas or did this sort of fall upon you in a different way? This, the answer is no. I was hired here because of my trial and appellate experience to help a large national law firm with its corporate clients. And so, yeah, I was in court, I was trying cases, I was arguing appeals, but they were everything from government contract cases to antitrust, to insurance coverage, to uh, commercial, to environmental, you know, the things that big law does. Uh, But I just had a lot of courtroom experience. And so they liked the idea that I could go to court for the clients. It was only after a year or two at the firm that I started getting these pro bono requests. Um, And that's really where the door opened swung open, I think is the right way to say it. Uh, And here we are 25 years later, and I've got one of the leading practices in the world for this sort of thing. Do you remember the first pro bono request that you had of that nature? Very well. The National Security Archive here in Washington, which is associated with George Washington University, uh, and a professor at American University, Phil Brenner, 
who was an expert on Cuba relations, um, asked me to represent them to declassify some very, very um, secret and sensitive documents, the Kennedy-Khrushchev correspondence during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, when probably the closest the world ever came to a nuclear war, other than, of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but I meant where both sides would blow each other up. And uh, because of my work representing the State Department and my knowledge of the court, um, I took the case on pro bono, and we won. And eventually, uh, the White House, uh, this was under Bush Sr., and General Scowcroft was the National Security Advisor, approved the declassification of this Kennedy-Khrushchev correspondence. As a result of that, I was invited to Havana, Cuba, to participate in the uh, 30th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the documents that I had obtained had been quickly translated into Spanish, and I met Fidel Castro, who, um, of course, was the only principal still alive. And it was a vast, fascinating experience. And uh, met Castro. I wrote an article about it for the Journal of the American Bar Association uh, with photographs and all that sort of thing. And that was really how things started. And from there, I got other requests. Eventually, Terry Anderson, the uh, uh, Associated Press uh, chief correspondent for the Mideast, who'd been a hostage for seven years and was at the heart of the Iran-Contra controversy under President Reagan, when he was released and was teaching at Columbia Journalism School, he asked me to represent him on a similar FOIA national security thing. And I did. And that was while I was representing Terry that Congress enacted the terrorism exception in 1996 to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. The rest, as they say, is history. What is the experience like working with clients who have been through such horrible traumas and losses, especially as someone in a big law firm who normally doesn't get to do plaintiff's work? It's both terrifying and gratifying. It's terrifying because just having to work with people who have lost a loved one or have been tortured or have been held captive or all the other things that, that we deal with, you know, this is, a, this is a part of the world most people don't want to live with, don't want to hear about. They don't even want to watch it on TV. You know, it's, it's all well and good to watch Homeland on TV and other silly shows. But when you're dealing with the reality of it, it's very, very different than watching it on television. This is not Netflix. Um, that's number one. Number two is if you're able to accomplish something for these families, which sometimes you can, and sometimes it takes years and years to do it, it's very gratifying. And you can see it not only because you might obtain some uh, financial uh, recovery for them, which is great, but also because that's what our world is about. Even the Bible talks about compensation. But the emotional closure, many of these people who are, um, for example, who were in an embassy when it blew up and weren't killed, um, many of them suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome and have for decades. Sometimes I have seen firsthand for them, for people who were hostages for several years, for their families, that going to federal court, telling their stories to a judge, getting a written decision from a federal judge, getting a check handed to them of some sort, changes their lives, literally changes their lives. doesn't make it better, but it helps them just put some of this in the rearview mirror in a way that perhaps they couldn't. That doesn't work for everyone. Some people carry these things to their grave. I've had clients like that. But as a lawyer, if you're able to accomplish that even sometimes, it's very gratifying. So let's talk a little bit about the terrorism exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, because this was a groundbreaking piece of legislation in 1996. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about 
what the landscape of claims against state sponsors of terrorism look like before the terrorism exception and um, what happened afterward? Well, the State Department, under both federal law and, and regulatory uh, program, has had a list of state sponsors of terrorism since the early 80s. It was designed to allow the president to come up with a comprehensive list and program of basically sanctions that could be imposed on the country if, after an administrative process, they were put on this terrorism list by the Secretary of State. And, you know, some of these things could really choke off a country's um, financial aid, choke off um, banking uh, in U.S. dollars, the U.S. banking system, and, and other, you know, big ticket things. And so it was designed as an administrative regulatory program run by the president and the secretary of state and commerce and treasury for, oh gosh, about 14 or 15 years. Then in 1996, well, I should say prior to 96, some people had tried to sue countries for terrorism. The most notable was up in the Eastern District of New York, the Lockerbie families, Pan Am 103 Lockerbie families had sued Libya for putting a suitcase bomb on the jumbo jet flying from London Heathrow to JFK, New York, which of course blew up over Scotland, Lockerbie, and killed a lot of American college kids. So it was it was sort of the poster child of terrorism, really until 9-11. And so their case against Libya had been thrown out by the district court and by the Second Circuit. So in 96, they joined with the families from Oklahoma City, who of course had been the victims of domestic terrorism. They really wanted to see that the perpetrators who had been charged and were on trial for the Oklahoma City bombings um, if they were found guilty and if they received the death penalty, would in fact be executed. That's very different groups of people, very different goals. But, you know, um, in Washington, sometimes uh, strange bedfellows, as we say, get together and really get things done. And so the New York area folks related to the Libya matter and the Oklahoma City people to the domestic terrorism case got together and helped Congress pass bipartisan a bill, you know, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which President Clinton signed. And when President Clinton signed it, uh, that became the law. And any country on the list of terrorist states at the State Department was a potential defendant in a terrorism suit. At that time, only if you were an American national. What exactly do you need to show in court in order to be able to sue a state? Well, there's two ways it happens. In one scenario, the state shows up and defends it. And in the other scenario, the state defaults. They choose not to come. We deal with both. I'll give you very good examples. Prior to 96, Iran always defended every case ever brought against it. They hired very good lawyers. After 96, they only defend commercial cases in federal court. They've hired the best lawyers. They litigate it. They're up in the D.C. Circuit. They have all kinds of issues. But on the terrorism cases, they default on purpose. It is a decision they've made. They do not want to engage on, on the terrorism cases. That, that's a way, because they're afraid they will legitimize them if they do that. Commercial cases, sure. Arbitrations, sure. And so that's one way. And that makes it harder because the statute requires that you don't just show up and say, I win, they didn't show up. You must come in with evidence, as they say in the statute, quote, satisfactory to the court, quote. And the judges in DC, federal court, US district court here, many of whom I know from my days as a law clerk there and as a US attorney, a number of whom I worked with are now judges, so I know the court very well. You know, they take that very seriously. So you actually sometimes have a harder time 
in a default case than you might in a contested case. And sometimes the judges say that's not good enough. But then if you do come in in a default case, you have to prove liability. You have to show a direct link between a state actor and the terrorist act that was there, or that they were providing what's called material support, another magic word from the statute. But you have a trial, you have to put on evidence, and the judges in D.C. are pretty strict about it, and you don't get away with it. And then then they have developed a bit of jurisprudence about the range of damages. And over, what is it now, 20 plus years, um, the judges in the district court have not only developed this jurisprudence about the range of damages, but the D.C. Circuit has adopted it, and even Congress has adopted it in some of the legislation they've enacted. So we've created a body of law that's now been um, put into statute. That's for the default cases. Now for the cases where they show up, uh, Libya showed up. I tell the story in my book, The Forgotten Flight, about how Libya defended the case that I brought here for the UTA Flight 772 case for the owner of the plane and the American families. And there, they raise every possible jurisdictional defense you can think of. And at that time, the D.C. Circuit rule was if a district judge denies a motion to dismiss on sovereign immunity, you have a right to an immediate appeal and a stay of the litigation. They think they did that three times over several years in the case, just to buy delay. We won every appeal. We got every stay lifted. We eventually had a trial on damages, which we won. And even then, Congress and the president took it away from us because of a diplomatic deal. So even where the, con- the, the country defends, like Libya, you can have these problems. I'm currently prosecuting these claims arising from the um, August 1998 uh, suicide truck bombs on our embassies in East Africa, Kenya and, Nai- and Nairobi, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. I represent all the Americans who were killed in Nairobi. Sudan is the defendant. They're on the terror list. And at the time of the bombings, they were providing safe harbor and material support to Al-Qaeda. That's why the district judge and the D.C. Circuit have found that Sudan is liable for these embassy bombings. The cases are currently before the Supreme Court on various petitions for certiorari by Sudan, which is represented by a big international firm, White Case. So I'm giving you, there's a range of ways these come up, and it just depends on which country wants to do. I'd like to ask you a little bit about the discovery process during these cases. But first, I just want to tell any listeners that your book, The Forgotten Flight, is a wonderful read. We, we definitely don't have enough time to get into the depths of the stories in that book, but I, I would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested. So to the discovery question, what does that look like when you're representing a victim against a foreign state? How do you get what you need? Well, obviously, in the default cases, there's no discovery. So that that takes care of all the Iran cases and the North Korea cases. With the cases in which the uh, state sponsor of terror does hire counsel and appears, Libya, for example, uh, Sudan, it's a very interesting story, and it's sort of a footnote to your question, but I was litigating one of the Libya cases, Peter Kilburn versus Libya. Kilburn had been, uh, he was the librarian at the American University in Beirut. He was taken hostage by Hezbollah, but then Gaddafi purchased him uh, and killed him after Ronald Reagan had bombed uh, Libya. Um, I represented the Kilburn estate and his family, and Libya was defending, and we convinced the judge, Judge Urbina, who used to be on the district court here, to um, force Libya to do a 30B6 deposition, you know, a corporate designee, and they just refused and refused and refused. Eventually, they produced a person from uh, the government, 
who basically said, I don't know anything. So we tried, we failed. We went back to Judge Urbina and he said, you can't do that. And he fined them under Rule 11. Uh, I think it was like $15,000 for our legal costs and they paid it. And that was the first and probably last time a terrorist state was both subject to discovery and a sanction that they paid for discovery abuse. I'm not aware of it ever happening again. And then after they paid the fine, did they continue being difficult about discovery? Yes, until President George W. Bush and Gaddafi entered into a deal in 2008. They got rid of all the Libya cases. Everything that was going on with Libya was also under investigation by the French as well in sort of a parallel situation. And I'm wondering whether you were able to use any of their materials um, when you were working on the case here in the U.S.? Actually, in the UTA case, um, UTA Flight 772, for, for your listeners, this was the other jumbo jet that Libya and Gaddafi blew up with a suitcase bomb. A lot of people are unaware there were two flights. Even the UN Security Council, when it issued all the sanctions on Libya, did it based on both flights. UTA 772 blew up, again, with a suitcase bomb, nine months after the Pan Am Lockerbie flight blew up. Um, but because it crashed in the remote desert of North Africa, nobody really knew about it other than the people whose loved ones were on the plane. And the French government, independent of the Brits and the U.S., did a remarkable investigation uh, of the cause of the crash. And through what may be one of the greatest detective stories in history, we're able to prove conclusively that Libyan intelligence agents had put the bomb on the plane uh, at, at a level of proof that I don't think has ever been replicated. I worked very closely with the French investigators and the French government. They basically handed over all of their forensic files to me, which helped us prove in court here in Washington, Libya's direct responsibility for blowing up the plane. That was an example of, in some ways, getting lucky that a foreign government like France and its criminal investigators, like Judge Bruguer, who was uh, the head of it, were willing to share evidence with someone like me to hold Libya responsible because it fit their own agenda. They were also disappointed about political deals that had allowed Libya and some of its agents off the hook. And so, you know, there's a lot of different ways this this goes. It's not just go to court and sue. There's a lot of things that come with What was the resolution of this case? Of the UTA case? Yes. Well, I obtained a very large judgment from Judge Henry Kennedy in the U.S. District Court. And while the case was on appeal, President Bush and uh, Colonel Gaddafi entered into a bilateral settlement agreement, which was approved by Congress in the Libya Claims Resolution Act. As a result, in return for handing over $1.5 billion from Libya to the U.S., all cases against Libya were dismissed with prejudice. They were espoused. As you know, the president has the power to espouse or dismiss claims of U.S. citizens in uh, relation to claims against other governments if he puts together a settlement. Here, President Bush obtained $1.5 billion. My clients got a small piece of that. I mean, not insignificant, but nothing like the judgment they obtained from federal court. The cases that were also thrown out then were the uh, Lockerbie Pan Am. They, they got the rest of their payments from a settlement. The LaBelle Disco case, uh, another uh, bombing in Germany, killed a number of American uh, service people, and my UTA case. And our clients were paid just not as much as we thought they were deserved and as much as the court had awarded them. Has the State Department been supportive of your cases against foreign states? And what does their involvement look like? Sometimes they're supportive, sometimes they're not. Depends on, you know, whose ox is being gored. 
Um, I tell the story in the book, The Forgotten Flight, how the Bush administration, State Department, did help me. Actually, the first and I think last time it's ever happened to help prove Libya's responsibility for blowing up the UTA 772 flight. They actually helped me with some of the evidence. A former ambassador, Thomas McNamara, um, who had been the head of counterterrorism, um, I asked him to do, who had run all the Libya policy for President Bush Sr. at the UN and the State Department. I asked him if he would testify in the case on liability. And he said, I will, but only if the State Department tells me it's okay. And I said, so I talked to the legal advisor's office, talked it through quite a bit. And um, eventually they, um, they said, okay. They reviewed uh, his affidavit and testimony, made some edits, and it was submitted. So there they helped me get liability. But after I won the damages trial, Gaddafi called up Bush and complained it was too much money. So Bush, who was nearing the end of his term, said, okay, let's get rid of all the Libya cases. We'll do a deal. You give me some money, we'll distribute it among the, the victims, and Libya's off the hook, period. So in the same case, the president of the United States helped me, and then he pulled the rug out from under me. And how's that for an answer? It's in the same case. In other cases, they take no position. In some cases, let's say we're in the D.C. Circuit on an appeal of something, they've come in as an amicus. Depends on the legal issue. Depends. Sometimes they want to straddle the fence. They don't really know sometimes. They want to support victims, but sometimes foreign policy wins out. I also have a unique situation. In these embassy bombings, I represent people who are government officials and government employees, foreign service officers, CIA intelligence officers, USAID uh, officials, Marine guards. So here, ironically, I'm almost acting like a private attorney general. I'm representing U.S. government employees at embassies in claims against a foreign government rather than the Justice Department representing them or the State Department or the CIA. That's a very interesting thing. It's a point I always remind the State Department every time I meet them when I'm on these, one of these cases. And they always say, yes, we know, Stu, you tell us that all the time. So they're sensitive to that. One of the biggest issues with these types of cases is collecting the judgments. Now, we spoke a little bit about Libya and Libya's settlement, but that's really an exceptional case. How have victims of state-sponsored terrorism who have been successful in court actually recovered the judgments that the court gave them? Well, there's been a variety of ways, not just by me, but by other lawyers. Let's go through two or three of the possibilities. The first time we got money, 20 years ago, um, I joined with some other people and we got legislation. The legislation, what was it called? The Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act or something like that, um, allowed us to access some frozen Iranian assets uh, and some frozen Cuban assets for some other people where those assets were designated by Congress to be used to pay some judgments. That was 20 years ago. So one, one option, get Congress to find some money for you. Another way, some lawyers might be lucky enough to find where a terrorism state, terrorist state has money, even if it's overseas, but it's held by a U.S. bank. For example, in the United States Supreme Court two years ago, the Bank Marchese case against Iran. That's a case which I was not involved in as a, as a lawyer or for my clients. It was mostly the Marine Barracks group uh, who were killed, the 270 Marines who were killed in Beirut in October of 1983 uh, when Hezbollah drove a truck bomb into the, into the Marine Barracks. That case, a very large case, mostly overseen by my old boss, Judge, Chief Judge Royce Lamberth. You know, that case, they were tipped off by OFAC, the Treasury Department, about some monies held in Europe 
by a company, which they said was a front for Iran, but it was through a Citibank uh, account. And through litigation in the Southern District of New York, the Second Circuit, and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, that money was ordered turned over to that group, and it was over $1.5 billion. So that's another way to collect, huge amount of money collected. Third way, something I'm very proud of. Over three years ago, um, particularly for those of my clients who'd been unable to ever recover, they didn't have a Libya settlement. They didn't have a, a Bank Marchese bank account. We convinced Congress to set up what, what's called the State Sponsor of Terrorism Victim Compensation Fund. It is administered by the U.S. Department of Justice and a special master. And it's basically where you can go if you have final court judgment. And final is defined by law um, for a certain amount. And only your compensatory damages can go over there. Punitives, prejudgment interests don't count. And it's interesting. The fund is financed by criminal and civil penalties, by foreign companies from Europe, from China, who have pled guilty in court, in U.S. District Court, to conspiring to violate all the Iran sanctions or other sanction programs. And we've, we're about to have the third tranche of payments from this in four years, come out this year. Um, the fund has paid out, by after this year, the fund will have paid out close to $3 billion. We have a large number of clients there with Final judgments, we have almost, a, at this firm, at Coral and Mooring, we have almost a 1,000 clients um, who are participating in the Victim Compensation Fund, which is what I call it in shorthand. And that fund was just renewed by Congress last fall for 10 more years. So that's a third way to try and get it. A fourth way is maybe you're in a case with a, a terrorist state and they just settle with you. Am I also correct in thinking that even after the U.S. government pays out that money to successful plaintiffs, it keeps sort of a bill for the country that was the original defendant in the case? In, in theory, yes. The statute, as originally drafted by Congress, basically says if the Justice Department, or should say when the Justice Department pays out money from the fund, which comes from these criminal and civil penalties, not from the taxpayers. Let's be very clear about that. Our clients didn't want taxpayer money. Um, but when they pay it out, there is a file created so that someday the president has the option of going to that country and saying, you know, you should cover some of this. In reality, that doesn't happen. So, but it's there. Was that mechanism used at all during the Iran deal? I don't think so. My understanding, and I think this is public, you can look it up, is that the Iranians said from day one of the nuclear negotiations, we are not going to discuss anything except the nuclear deal. You raise anything else, we're going to walk out. You talk about terrorism, we walk out. Now, of course, at the end of the negotiations on the nuclear deal, which you recall was a UN Security Council deal. It wasn't just a US deal. There is still a deal. We're just the ones who pulled out. The other Europeans stayed in it. And now Iran seems to be pulling out as well. But it was a UN deal. The decision by President Obama to hand over the 400 million and the billion dollar interest, my understanding based on public information, is that decision was made as a good faith effort to show the president of Iran that we'll help you internally. This is help you save face. It didn't help at all. In fact, I think it sent the wrong message because in hindsight, we got nothing out of it and they did. I do want to ask you, so if there were to be new negotiations, is there money that Iran owes the United States now because of this fund that would theoretically be on the table? 
you, I think the State Department could take that position, and I think Iran would say no. One thing you should know, after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against Iran in the Bank Marchese case, and $1.5 billion of Iranian central bank money was handed over to the plaintiffs and their clients, Iran filed a case, a claim, against the United States at the International Court of Justice. And that case, which is pending now, says the U.S. violated sovereign immunity and violated treaties between the U.S. and Iran, the French Trip and Trade and Commerce Treaties, by taking the central bank's money and using it for domestic litigation purposes. That case is pending. The State Department represents the United States in that case. Um, it was filed like a year and a half, two years ago. These cases take five years to get litigated or more. Um, and it's been briefed. I, th- I know there were recently some arguments. It continues. So Iran has sued the United States saying, you owe us money for that in an international venue. I guess to be clear about the ICJ judgment as well, even if the United States were to lose at the ICJ, there's no real enforcement mechanism that would stop the United States from continuing to go after Iranian money in the United States, correct? Let's put it this way. Both legally and politically, you're correct. But it's also about um, reputation and also how the United States holds itself out in the world as a rule of law country. Perhaps we've put that on hold with this administration. But generally, we take the position that we believe in the rule of law. And that's why we're defending the case of the ICJ, obviously with many jurisdictional objections that they can't do this. However, there's a certain level of reputational risk and diplomatic risk that comes from losing a case like that. And that happens all the time at the ICJ. They can't enforce a lot of their judgments. Thank you so much for talking about a wide range of really interesting issues with us today. I'm sure our listeners, especially the law students, really appreciate learning about different career opportunities in in big law that they probably had never thought about before and what an exciting career you've had. To all of our listeners, uh, check out The Forgotten Flight. It is a wonderful read. And thank you so much, Mr. Newberger. My pleasure. Thank you very much. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshyLRev. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify.